You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole. We're calling it the hard deck tonight because we're not going below 5,000 feet. And I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing. And with me, as he is every single, well, not every single week, but he he's in spirit, I feel like. Um, and I'm so glad that he's here tonight to talk with me about um, Top Gun Maverick. That's right. The one, the only, the Sith. Oh wow, the Sith! You know, uh, yeah, that's that's your moniker. That's oh, the one really? you got a top Sith gun. Is right? my Top Gun? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's oh, well, that's my call sign. Ooh, mm-hmm. the Sith. I don't. Hmm. I don't think that should be my call sign. I don't think that should be my call sign. What should my my call sign be? Sith. I'm not a Sith. Yeah, call me Mace. How about that? Call me yeah. Mace. My my call sign will <laughs> be like Mace. Um, what 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 will you know, be your call sign? Say, Kenobi. Oh man! See, that's a that is a. I thought about that question. Um, so, legitimately, uh, when I was working at summer camp, um, we gave each other names like that. We had a camp name, and you called everybody by their camp name. And it wasn't until the end of the week when the kids felt got to learn your real name. So, uh, I was actually almost called Maverick. Oh. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, somebody had had that name at the camp before me and gotten fired. So that name was Nixed. I was not able to use that. So I was called Standby. Um, it's a whole long hold story. But hold anyway, on a second. Um, I think, okay, before you give your call sign, let's be honest. Most people would probably give me the call sign Jackass. Okay. Can we agree on that one? <laughs> this is true. So, so let's agree on that this one. Is true. Or asshat, something of no, that I think nature. Jack, I think yeah. Jackass yeah. is right. You know. <laughs> Um, jackass flies for the zinger factory. Uh, but what would your call sign be? Ooh, that nope, nope, nope. You're wrong. Your call sign is zinger. Even better. I love it. I there know. There you go. That's I the know. winner right there. I know. Uh, <laughs> you know, in all honesty, um, one, I did love fanboys call sign because it was actually written in the Star Trek yep. font, which was well done them. Uh, you know, I don't know what my call sign would be. Um, hmm. I still, I just, I Kenobi. I mean, I think that would be a good call sign for you. That would work. I, yeah. Um, I could totally see that being my call oh, sign. What um, would your call sign? Be? Maybe we should open be, that up to yeah, the audience. Be, Maybe people should, uh, reach out hmm, through social media and let you know what your call sign should be. Absolutely. You know, that's a great question, John. People should do that through social media. And of course you can reach us all over the place over in our social media. Uh, we've got the 602 club on Twitter. Uh, and at the 602 Club TFM on Instagram. Of course, you can find the entire network on Facebook at facebook.com slash trackfm. And we've got the listeners only discussion group where it's a great place to have this conversation. Uh, so go over there. You can find the Babel Conference and join and talk to listeners from all over the world. We've got the website at trek.fm. And you could send us an email there if you'd like as well and even uh, give us that information. I don't know. I might be something like uh, Cal L or superman or something like Ooh. that just because that's also my you know, my love you know of what? superman i like, as I like well. that a superman so. is a pretty badass call sign let's be honest that's, that's what a pretty I'm solid too. one yeah I so mean, zinger uh, zinger 
and Superman. Zinger and Superman. We're, we're the, we're the wingmen on this show. I love it. <laughs> well, you know, I and I love when we get to hang out together, and we don't need wingmen because we're married now. That's so, true. But, yeah, we still fly cover for each other just yes. in case. Um, but, of course, uh, if you would also like to help out the network, you can also do that over on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm. We could definitely use your help. We really appreciate everybody who's continued to support us through a rough few years for everyone. And if you like what we do here, please go over there and support us and make sure that all of this content can keep coming to you each and every week. So, um, John, I am really interested about this because, you know, obviously Hollywood has a love affair with going back and mining old things. And sometimes it works great and sometimes it's a disaster. And so when you heard that they were coming back to make a sequel to Top Gun. How were you feeling about that? Were you excited at all? Did you have any thought that like, oh, this could be good? Or was it one of those things like, okay, you really got to prove this to me? I love that question because baked into it is my own history with the movie. Back when Top Gun came out, I didn't encounter it until video. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I was old enough. I saw it on video before 1988 or what you know whenever it came out on video somebody in my family got it we watched it everybody and i mean everybody seemed to love top gun and i was just a little kid basically and i was like i don't like this movie too much it's okay like i like the jet stuff and i was pariah for quite some time uh, and specifically because i was the one kid who didn't really like top gun And that stayed with me through the years. So when I heard that they were going to make a sequel, my reaction was eye roll. Was just, uh, of course they are. Right? Everything old is new again. Of course they're going to do this. All right, fine. Let's, whatever. It wasn't on my list of things I wanted to see. It wasn't anything where I was like, yeah, wow, they're going to make a second Top Gun movie. It was, sure, okay. Spend your money however you want to. That's fine. What about you? You know, it's so interesting. This is definitely an 80s movie to which I've always enjoyed, um, you know, and there's, uh, you know, it, Top Gun is probably, uh, to me, one of the best 80s movies in the sense of, like, if you want a taste of what the 80s was. Mm, good point. Uh, this is a movie that really, I think, accentuates that idea. I mean, it was over-commercialization to the hilt, you know, and and it was that for the Navy. Specifically, Tony Scott was a commercial director, so it makes sense of why this, I think he did a pretty good job, although the movie was actually saved in editing um, because they figured out how to do the sequences in the air to make it feel the tension that you needed. So all that together, I was interested of the idea of them coming back, but I wasn't sure how that, you know, that would work. And, I think it's just the history of, like I said, you know, so many things have been gone back and they've mined and some have worked, but I would say very few of them have been like gangbusters. Great. Right. And I what this comes down to and I I wanted to actually kind of tackle right up front is I think the reason that this movie is a success and the type of success that we are seeing actually comes down to the ideas that, you know, Tony Scott and 
Jerry Brockheimer were working on the sequel. They were writing the sequel, and they they had the script from Tony Scott. They were, they had the go ahead from Tom Cruise and everything. And then, of course, uh, tragically, Tony Scott committed suicide in 2012. So the the future of the movie was unclear. And then it's Kosinski who comes up with this phenomenal idea of of two sides of the story, the side where Maverick is dealing with the fallout with um, Goose's son and the actions that have been taken there, and then the fact that Maverick's getting older and his you know, work with the Dark Star and, and his inability to kind of find his place where he can do what he's best at and people actually wanting that. And to me, Kosinski is really the key here because like Tron, which I know you uh, are a massive fan of Tron Legacy, um, we thought he just kind of nailed that as well. And so I think he's absolutely able to tap into everything you need to nostalgia-wise for this movie, but at the same time give you a story that continues it in a way that is fulfilling, enjoyable, and leaves you wanting more, actually. I am glad you mentioned Tron Legacy because I think that there are some people who are naturally gifted storytellers in the sense that they, as directors, understand what type of story an audience is going to respond to. It's just instinctive for them. He's given the task by Disney, let's bring back Tron, which is this obscure... I mean, let's face it. Look, I love the original Tron nostalgically, but it's, it's it's a concept movie when Disney was just sort of in the flail. They're trying to figure out what direction they're going to go in the early 80s, and they came up with some gem that was really wild and strange but very difficult to plug into. So it doesn't really find its audience. And I always reference the Simpsons bit about, has anybody seen Tron? It's from one of the, the Treehouse of horrors. It's very funny, but he comes back, he makes Tron legacy, which I have maintained for many years is the movie that, uh, honestly force awakens wanted to be, but couldn't be. (laughs) I, yeah. And I remember you saying to that, that to me for the first time and me thinking, right. It was like that that gif, you know, where your mind was blown. I was like, "That you're absolutely right. That's a hundred percent what they should and have it, done." And it's oh, and it's always eaten me up inside that Kaczynski was never tapped to do one of the new Star Wars movies. I think he would have been hundred yep. percent. I've always been convinced in my head. Well, he can obviously deal with effects. He he knows story. He knows pacing. He knows how to resurrect a franchise. And then I get this, and look, Tony Scott commercial director he comes up top gun huge success it, it actually kind of mirrors what simpson and bruckheimer did with adrian line who was a commercial director where they had a very similar template for flash dance and then you have footloose which we're about to talk about on That's the show right. uh and yeah the next right. episode so, so. so you can trace this line from flash dance to footloose to top gun and top gun is when tony scott who's what in my opinion one of the best directors of the last 50 years puts his his touch on it it's like wow bang there you go Mm -hmm. this is and i I don't know i'm rambling at this point but kaczynski i think is really your key kaczynski continually demonstrates this and 
with the box office receipts so far while we're talking about the movie, I'm thrilled because I hope this opens doors for him as a director so that it's not just Tom Cruise trying to give him jobs that it studios go, oh, wait, he's bankable. And I hope this winds up being his breakthrough for everybody. Well, and, and you know, it came out that one of the reasons that Tron 3 was put on the back burner was because of Star Wars and uh, because of the Marvel franchise. Mm-hmm. Does this maybe crack the door open for them to say, let's scrap whatever ideas that we have for Tron 3 and just go with the original idea he had? Because, they, I mean, seriously, the money that this movie is making is insane. Yes, it is. I think that Disney won't do that because I think Disney is a slow bureaucratic behemoth now that can't turn things around. If it were Warner Brothers, given the angel mm-hmm. of death moving that, through the executive yeah. core over there, I think Kaczynski has a That's shot, true. but no, nah, not with Disney. Yeah. Or, I mean, even with what's going on, I mean, Paramount obviously yeah. is, you know, uh, well, so I think the, the couple things, obviously, to me, it's very interesting, you know, that Kaczynski basically, I mean, he flies to Paris, talks to Cruz. Cruz loves the idea and and calls the studio and they green light the movie immediately. Um and so they obviously realize they have gold um with as difficult as Cruz can be to work with, you know, and, and he has been with let's not be let's be honest, with with Mission Impossible, he's been proven right. This movie needed to be seen on the big screen. This movie didn't need to be seen in um in your living room. This is a movie that reminds you of why we go to the movies. And so I, I think, you know, for as frustrating, I'm sure that could be for the studio. The studio is now reaping the rewards of Tom Cruise believing that this needed to be a film on the big screen. I think that's an amazing point. I think it's absolutely spot on. And I also think that Cruise has that same innate sense. He knows what people want to see. He knows what people want to experience. Yes. But if this were released streaming first or streaming only, word of mouth with streaming now is not enough. Period. You have to have your audience baked in. We're seeing that with this split and this tribalism now with Stranger Things 4 and Kenobi and Strange New Worlds where people are breaking out. And I was talking about this with a friend of mine. And this is this is one of those things where this is not old man yelling at cloud. But I think playing into this is that when you have a movie theater experience, you have something where word of mouth has power. Because it's people who go out, and I don't want to cheapen the word, but I've been going out since seeing the movie evangelizing to my neighbors. No, you got to go see this. No, you got to go see this. If somebody comes to me and they say, hey, this new thing on Netflix, you got to see it. I'm like, yeah, I'll put it in my queue. I'll get to it. And I never get to it because I'm, you know, stuff always gets in front of it. I got to, I got to get on it that night or I'm, or it's going to fade. And this is one of those things where I I just want to call out your right Cruz saying, this has got to be up there. I can tell you if I saw this on the TV first. I'd say, wow, that was really good. I liked it. My word of mouth doesn't carry the same sort of weight for people. 
because I'm coming out of something saying I spent 15 bucks a ticket, I got concessions, and I sat there for two hours and 11 minutes, and I'm psyched about this. You got to go catch this. There's real, I think there's real power behind that. There's weight. Well, I think part of that is because it means more because somebody legitimately went out of their way to go to the theater. Whereas at home, I mean, did I go out of the way to sit on my butt at, in my pajamas and see what was streaming on one of the services? No, there's absolutely nothing there, right? And so I, I think that's why word of mouth for something like a a film in the theater means so much more because you know that people literally put their money where their mouth is and, and their time, you know, in a way that that doesn't happen when we're talking about streaming. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that people are responding to, I think, with this film is the fact that it is a movie that reminds us why we go to the big screen to have those experiences that you can't have at home. No matter how good your surround sound system is at home, you can't have this this experience of when, like, you know, I saw it in an IMAX theater where those flying sequences, most of them are in IMAX format, and the sound is shaking your seat. That doesn't happen at home. Yes, and and, and I think also the fact that the audience is there and the audience is into it that reinforces your experience. It's a, yep. Listen, yep. we can dance around this all that we want to. We can, we can say this. We can say that humans are social creatures. We enjoy experiencing things with other people. You can't take that away from us. It's impossible. We cease to function yes. properly if we don't have that social interaction. And even though I don't know a single person in that theater and I will never see them again, it meant more that I was there with them. And I'm I swear to I swear mm-hmm. to goodness, if this were um, you know, terms of endearment to, you know, the endearing, I, you know, even if I saw it with an audience, I'd be like, Yeah, it's good. There 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 is very much a big screen component to this that is baked into it that you just you know, like, like you're saying, you just can't have it at home. It's just not possible unless I invite my whole neighborhood over and we cram into a little spare bedroom and like watch it at the same time. It's just not going to carry over. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I just it, it's it's really interesting. And, you know, I think this might be the movie that helps save theaters for a while mm. because I think people are have been clamoring for this and they didn't even know they wanted it. And Tom Cruise gave them everything they never knew they always wanted. Yeah. With this film, uh, especially coming out of COVID. And, and, and before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, like I think this is just a movie that also makes you feel good. Yes. It makes you feel good about life. It makes you feel good about America. It makes you feel good about our military. It makes you feel good about all these things that, in many ways, lots of movies try to make us feel bad about. And this is a movie that makes us feel good, not in a jingoistic, like, terrible way, but in a way that celebrates the best of who we are. And I think that's something that people are also responding to, even if they don't know they are. I I agree with you. I um, I think that those themes are very subtextually done. You go back to the original Top Gun 
and that is basically just an, a Navy Flyers commercial. It's like, hey, join the Navy, fly like Tom Cruise, everybody's happy. Whereas this, I think it's a little more subtle. It's a little more personal, where it's not so much a recruitment video as it is that sort of, I think the thing that really strikes the chord that I think is really beautiful is that personal journey of Maverick of, I think it's being very understandable early on in the film where they go through the litany of like, you've never made it past captain. Look at how old you are now. And his attitude is more like, this is what I was meant to do. It reminded me immediately in echo of star Trek two, which is another great film about somebody who wasn't meant to be past captain where this is where he was meant to be. It's a, it's it's a a waste of talent to do anything else. And Maverick is more well-adjusted about it than Kirk because he hasn't accepted those promotions because he knows he has the wisdom to say, no, no. And he hasn't even been offered them, really. I mean. (laughs) But but that's the thing is he's like, this is the life I want to lead. Who are you to tell me that I underachieved? I achieved what I want. Mm -hmm. And the rest is just that's on you, not me. Yeah, I mean, I love that you pulled that out, especially with, uh, you know, the the idea with Star Trek 2, because, yeah, wouldn't anything less be a waste of material, Mm -hmm. as Spock says? You you know, like, Maverick, this is what he's good at. In fact, he even says to Ice, he says, I am a naval aviator. It's not who I am, it's what I am. Like, it's in his bones, like, it's something, like ineffable in the sense that he doesn't even know how to explain it to other people. It's just what he does, right? Like that's that's the talent that he was given and and like that's a hard thing to like pass on to people or explain to people and and so yeah. So I I think you're absolutely right because to get into it, he's still a maverick. Right. But I love that he's a character who is taking the lessons from that first movie. And he's utilizing them, not his his talents and his gifts and who he is. He's not using it for himself. He's using it for the benefit of others. And what we constantly see him doing here is is kind of laying himself on the line for other people. You know, he gets himself in trouble with the Dark Star just so he can save the jobs of the guys who are working on this project. And then he, you know, uh, consistently works to try and save the lives of the pilots who are going to go on this mission by making sure that they can fly the mission in a way that, yes, will put them in danger, but also gives them their best chance of survival because he doesn't want people coming back right, dead. You know, or not coming back at all. So what's beautiful here is that Pete's changed, but he still has that maverick heart and he's using it for good. And that's phenomenal. Well, and I think that something that's really great, and I think you touch on there, is that he's still haunted by Goose's death. It has real weight for him. Yes, And the reason he's there for everybody, and this is the subtext through the whole movie, is... He doesn't want another goose ever to happen. Yes. That yep. that is that is what is on his brain twenty four seven. And I think that that conflict with Rooster, I'm really glad they got Miles Teller, because I think he did a really good job. And I think that he also looks just enough like Anthony Edwards that I buy he's his son and I get why um 
you know, why Maverick would look at him and be shaken by the look of him as he's standing there and as he sings the song that we saw him sing in the original Top Gun while Rooster was sitting there as a child singing along with them. And just that idea of that that loss and that conflict being sort of that driving thing for him through his whole life, I think, is is really great. It's really great. Yeah, I absolutely love that, too. Uh, you know, I thought, and, and again, this is one of the things that makes the movie so successful is that it becomes so personal. It's about Maverick, you know, and it's about his experience of what happened before and the way in which he was working to, as he said, try to be the father that Rooster would never have, right? And it created choices for him to which were really difficult. You know, I mean, the choice of, do I pull his papers because his mother never wants him to fly and she made me promise before she died? And do I tell him that? Because then if I tell him that, she's going to hate him on top of me. And so do I just let him hate me instead of both of us? You know, all of those questions, which is what it means to be a parent, right, is to try and make the best decision for your child and think about all the different ramifications, mm-hmm. short-term and long-term. And in the end, I mean, the way that that connects with his kind of pers- his work life, which is that he's trying to make the decisions that are, are best for him, but also are best for helping the military, because I think he instinctively realizes that they need to be thinking out of the box. They need to be, you know, pushing themselves past these limits that have been artificially created and those kind of things and like that's where the two stories connect and i think it it it's it's just a masterpiece in the sense that every part of this movie works together because they're all driving towards similar themes but in from different points of view and that's what makes it so good i think also there's a really strong thread here about and this is a very star wars type of thing that no matter how good the technology is, people are what matter most. Right. And right. it is really interesting because it is completely anti everything that we've gotten over the last 10 or so years, 15 years by this point with Marvel, 14 years, whatever. Where movies like Iron Man, movies like The Avengers, movies like Marvel in general, in a sense, there's a subtext of letting the technology become part of our identity, letting the technology take us over, letting the technology do this, letting the te- and becoming subservient to our own sort of advances. Whereas Maverick, he's a Maverick also in the sense that he has that interaction with Kane, where Kane says, "You're obsolete," and he says, "Maybe someday, but not today." And it's like that is a very rebellious sort of sentiment nowadays to say, you know, technology is great and all, but it's really people that matter and people will always be the thing that matters most. And you can see how that even layers in, like you're saying, to he he decides to sort of take on all of the shame and the guilt about 
getting in Rooster's way because why have him resent his mom? They can't ever resolve that. She's already dead. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a fantastic point. I, I was thinking as you were talking, and something that kind of struck me about the film, there is a Randian nature to this film, I think. Randian, what do you mean? And Rand. Really? In yep. the sense of we're like... We're into controversial territory here. Yeah. Uh, but the idea of this kind of like exceptionalism that Maverick has. Mm, okay. Right? He's exceptional, and he's not accepted for it because it's not something that is easily quantifiable and or passed on to others. Mm. And you see what I'm saying? And and so Mm. to me, that was something that was really, really interesting because even he struggles on how to pass that on to somebody else to get them even close to this innate ability that he has like he literally is the best even at his age he's still the best um and what was interesting is that the way the movie kind of shows us in the end it doesn't tell us it shows us that his belief that rooster could be that and to push him in the right way pays off because actually rooster is that too Hmm. He has that ability. He has the ability not only to um, be the same type of pilot who's willing to take the risks if he would just open up himself, but he actually has the skill because he's the one who doesn't have the laser. He just hits it by himself. Right. By lining up just perfectly, you know? So um, that, that, that kind of hit me because I... There is, I think people like that, they aren't accepted, especially in places like, you know, these big bureaucratic organizations, which even the military is, mm-hmm. right? Um, where you, you're just supposed to check these boxes and then you're done, right? And then we go to the next thing. Um, it's difficult to interact with somebody that's not quantifiable. And, and Maverick, as per who he is, is not quantifiable as a person in many ways. Yeah. And, and and the thing that I like a lot about that is that the one antagonist from the first movie you find out through the years has been his biggest champion. Iceman yes. has been his, his guardian angel yep. through all of this, which I think gives real weight to the resolution of that relationship at the end of Top Gun. You've... Like, it's easy to view the original Top Gun and say, well, of course, they shook hands at the end. They have to. This is sort of the expected thing. But it takes that little seed of, you know, you could view it as sort of like a, a pedantic gimme sort of thing. And it it jumps it forward to say Iceman went on that track that we all knew he was going to go on. And he used his success as a way to shield Maverick because he recognized that Maverick needed to be where he was and Maverick needed to continue being who he was. And I think that really is, I thought that was the most unexpected and pleasant aspect mm-hmm. to Maverick's present. What was showing yeah. how that no, part I of his past paid off. 
and not only that, but I think what's beautiful about it is that, you know, what what he says, I says, you know, the kid needs you. The Navy needs you. That's why you're here. Like he understands that there is the need for those that are exceptional to push the rest of us beyond ourselves, right? Because there are going to be missions like this to which you can come back from, but you've got to be thinking outside the box. You've got to be thinking outside parameters, you know, which you've got to be thinking about what are your limits, not the limits of the plane, not the limits of anything else. It's it's And it's, it's what Rooster understands when he says it's not about the plane, it's about the pilot. Yeah. You know, he gets it. He's just had that mental block of what's happening to him with his father. And so, yeah, I think all of that's fantastic. One more interesting thing that I thought about this with with Maverick and obviously we're talking a lot about him, but the movie is really all about who he is for the most part. Um, This feels I, I think in some ways feels really meta to me about Cruz himself and the idea of Cruz being relevant. Um, by doing things his way and I think showing that it still works, right? Good stories, good acting, and actual action, real action, bring people into the theater, right? And I think that's a part of all of this, you know? And I think maybe that's one of the reasons he just kind of gravitated towards Kosinski's ideas and why this movie works so well is he's fully bought in. But part of that is because I think He's trying to say, like, can we just stop making movies that we're just pumping out as uh, quote-unquote entertainment and create movies that people actually want to see because they care about Okay, this is where I wind up getting into controversial territory because, number one, I love that meta read. I I think you're onto something there. That there is something about Cruz himself that we see in Maverick. And it reminds me of something, actually, that William Shatner, not to make another Star Trek reference, but William Shatner said on, uh, it was the second disc um, on the uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture soundtrack. It was like Inside Star Trek or something like that, where Shatner Shatner said, well, I, I think there's... A lot of me and Kirk and a lot of Kirk and me. He's like, that's just how it works. I I can play him because I understand him sort of thing. So I think your meta read has a very, a very real feel to it. But in terms of the making spectacles that people want to see that they don't feel obligated to see, I think that prepare to hate me, everybody. Top Gun Maverick is the type of event movie that Marvel manufactured. And if you look at the sort of manufactured aspect of Marvel, the story group, the constraints, the lack of organic growth to everything, and then you look at Maverick and you say, oh yes, this is the truly free director, producer, actor who are saying we just want to make something absolutely crazy insane that everybody wants to see not obligated to see but really wants to see or or i think what you said earlier was like they didn't know they wanted to see this but they wanted to see this sort of thing and i think it 
illustrates how hollow some of those franchise type of movies can be. And I, I, I'm not saying that as a slight, we, you know, we've done assembling Avengers here on the 602 club, right? James Gunn, I think is in that slot in the, in the Marvel movies. I think Peyton Reed found that slot in the Marvel movies too, but like, I, I hope I'm not overstating the point, but you get what I'm saying here. This feels like an organic event movie as opposed to a, okay, it's phase two. It's the end of phase two. We have to have an event movie at this point to transition. Well, I I really do gravitate towards what you're saying because I, I think what it is, is it the, the recognition that they matter, right? The stories matter that we're telling. And so... You know, Cruz has talked about uh, in the news, which is this idea like, you know, we weren't just going to come back and do this. Like, it had to be right. He is a producer at heart. Like, one of the things that he did in the original Top Gun, and we talked about this in the, the, uh, the episode we did on Top Gun, which was he actually learned how to be a producer, that he wrote that into his contract so that he could be more than just an actor. He was not going to do this film unless they he felt like they had the story to tell that was the good. As our friend always says, um, John, when we're talking about especially like Star Wars, you have to have the why first. And the why has to be beyond because planes are cool. Because X-Wings are cool, right? This story, and I'll compare it to Kenobi here just to make the comparison has a why. Why? Because it's about Maverick. It's about telling us something about Maverick that we didn't know before, that we didn't understand before, and kind of helps complete his journey, right? I would say the same thing about the new Kenobi show. It's about telling us something we didn't know about the character and about helping us complete his journey and making it more complete than it was before. And I think that's why it works. And, and part of that, and we brought this up a little bit, but... I'm so glad that they were able to get Val Kilmer back. Amen. I think he, he has such a pivotal role. He's obviously in it for a very short time, and and we all know the reason. He's filming this at a time before he had even had surgery. Um, he's definitely struggling. Um, but the fact that he came back, the fact that you can feel the love between him and Tom um, in that scene is just, I mean, it's palpable that these two guys have such respect and love for one another. And... He's the one who makes the rest of this possible, right? Um, he's one of the main characters who helps push his friend beyond where he is by getting through to him. And, and, and what's beautiful about it is that we're able to do it with some text on a screen, some looks, and a few lines of dialogue. It's just incredible. I think it gets at the core of something we've all unfortunately organically forgotten because he hasn't been active for obvious reasons uh, for some time. But Kilmer is a truly gifted actor. All he needs are his expressions to convey what we need to know as an audience. And I think that that moment actually winds up pulling out a probably one of the best scenes of performance from Cruz 
that I've seen in a while because he has to give back what Kilmer is giving to him and he doesn't have a heated exchange. He doesn't have a verbal cue. He simply has to go off of what Kilmer is giving him visually. And the fact that they make it work where Kilmer is silent through the majority of that scene is incredibly powerful. And I think that the thing that made me sad during that scene in a real-world sense was this really feels like no matter how many years are left, this was Kilmer's true goodbye to everybody, saying, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. I want everybody to know how much I appreciate what I've had. And seeing this performance along with the documentary about him called Val, it really made me made me understand the painful moment that this former megastar is in, not just facing his mortality, but also understanding he's never he's never going to perform the way he did ever again. And this is his this is his swan song performance, and it's a beautiful moment because he's given a moment to shine, and it really feels like a true gift, not a gift from Cruz, but a gift to Kilmer from everyone to give him that opportunity to have one last bow with everybody and say, "I appreciate it. I did everything I could. Goodbye." I love you. Mm -hmm. And I felt so much love for Val Kilmer, who was such a fixture of my youth on screen. I felt so much love for him in that moment. And it was really, it really did affect me. It really did affect me because he's big star of my generation. And I'm seeing him give his final farewell performance wise on the screen. That's really, that really has weight. I mean, I, I honestly, I think you said it so well, and I, I don't know what I can add to that, but I, I just, I completely concur with everything you said, and, and I I did find it to be one of the most moving and impactful parts of the film, and, you know, in all honesty, there probably were uh, some, some I mean, what was it, Dusty oh, in the theater? I yeah, don't know. Yeah, it, it got a little dry in my theater. <laughs> it was a little dry. A little dry. Um, and... And it should, you know, and, and I again, I think that's the thing that this movie was able to do is it like you talked about it. We're kind of coming off this this the, the original film is this kind of like commercial for the Navy with, you know, hot guys and, you know, fast planes and pretty girl, all that kind of stuff. And yet this movie is playing with real emotion. And then I, I think Maybe this is weird, but I think it's because this is maybe the Gen X movie. Yeah. Where we're all dealing with our own mortality and we're all dealing with our own age. You know, Cruz is older than than both of us. Um, but you know, Jennifer Connelly's not that much older than either of us. Uh and we're in that age range, right? Where it's like, yeah, we're kind of starting to notice that maybe we have maybe more life behind us than we do have in front of us and and like asking all those questions and that scene with Kilmer 
I think allows us to be able to start to deal with those ramifications. But it's also the ramifications as we were talking about that we're dealing with with Maverick in this film, right? Like, what do you want for your life? And what do you want for the rest of your life? You know, and if you want to make a change, you got to make it now because you ain't got a lot of time left. Well, I mean, how you know, who knows how much time any of us have left, right? It's like, uh, I, it's so well, true. I almost think of the end of, uh, you know, the, the end of Blade Runner, you know, who knows how long she has, but then again, who, you know, uh, I, I'm going to butcher the line, but it's like, you know, it's Edward James almost his line echoing in his, in, in Decker's head where he, you know, um, where, where he's basically saying she doesn't know how much time she has left, but then again, who does? And ju- just that sort of. Uh, that sort of driving focus. And if anything, while Maverick is saying goodbye to, to Iceman, I can honestly say that um, since my, my father did not, you know, go the same way as Iceman, I can honestly say that the way that they handled that scene and seeing the flag folded up and hearing uh, taps play, for anybody who's gone through that experience of anybody who served and they have that moment at the funeral, that was an incredibly difficult moment to get through mm-hmm. in the theater. And yeah. um, very resonant, very, very resonant. Well, one of the things, John, that I really, I thought worked phenomenally well um, was the way in which we brought back an old flame that was mentioned in the first movie uh, by uh, Carol Bradshaw about the fact that, you know, he went ballistic with Penny Benjamin, one of the, an admiral's daughters, uh, you know, because, you know, he likes high speed passes over control towers and an admiral's daughter. Uh, So we bring that character back and we utilize them as the love interest and the one to which, helps with that motivation of realizing what Maverick wants out of life, which is he wants a family. He wants what Goose had. He's 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 going to stop running and start living uh, in, in that way. And, you know, I felt like it was Jennifer Connelly was such a great choice because, one, she's, you know, similar in age to, to Cruz, um, enough so it makes sense uh and she's just so good on screen she's so effortless on screen and she just she makes it seem easy um yeah and it was she was great and then the you know i have a lot of friends who have teenage kids and so the way she was interacting with her daughter as well and and the fact that they had had struggles coming to that type of relationship and everything was reminding me of a lot of the conversations I have with, you know, parents that have, you know, girls, especially of that age and stuff. And so this was the best choice, mainly because it was really interesting. I felt like it does kind of show that Charlie wasn't the right choice for Maverick in the end. Uh, Yeah. You know, <laughs> and. But that there was somebody that was, and it had, it, it took him making that decision of, I've got to nail this down. Like, I, I, I've got to stop running and start living. Yes. 
I I think that ties in as well to one of the things that's a theme in Star Wars about the idea of found family, that it doesn't need to be family as it has been typically understood, but it's still family because at the end of the film, Maverick has Rooster, Andy yep. has Penny, and he has Penny's daughter, Amelia. Yep. And so he yep. has a family at that point. And so I, I completely agree on that front. I think that there, to speak to Connolly's performance, there are a lot of people I've spoken to where they're saying, oh, well, Kelly McGillis. Kelly McGillis and Tom Cruise never really had chemistry. And I rewatched the original Top Gun not so long ago. And she's there, but it wasn't really a chemistry sort of thing. It was a, this is the love interest, mm-hmm. and this is Kelly McGillis here, right, yep. and that's what it is. I actually bought the chemistry between Connolly and Cruz, and I think that's to your point. Connolly has, to borrow your word, effortless charisma that comes across on screen. And it's it's something where I believed her character and I believed Maverick opening up to her. And because I believed both of those things, I don't care that Kelly McGillis isn't in the movie. Maybe some people find that heartless, maybe, but it's also one of those things where I think it showed that they didn't feel obligated to make a movie that was slavishly beholden to audience expectation. You expect Kelly McGillis to come back and Goose's mom, Goose's wife to be there, you know, Rooster's mom and all of those sorts of things. So it tweaks things just enough that it doesn't feel like a cheap copy of the first one. Even though in some senses it's hitting the same beats through the whole thing. So it doesn't feel it to borrow from from George Lucas himself. It rhymes. It's not identical, but it rhymes. And I think that changing just those few story points and having Penny instead, I think that's a good thing. I think that helps. Yeah. No, I 100% agree with you. Uh, You know, I I think the beauty is, is that they mined the original and that they created something that felt very in line with this character, right? That Penny wasn't just a one-night stand, that Penny was somebody who Maverick had an on-again, off-again relationship. And and I also think that's something that's really realistic in life. That happens to quite a few people, right? And I, I was very... I, I think one of the most touching scenes in the movie is when he jumps out the window and Amelia's standing there and she says, just don't break her heart again. Mm-hmm. And you... I mean, you realize the weight. He realizes the weight of what he's done. You know, and he's just told her he never wants to leave her again. But I think that's even more solidified in that, that it's he's choosing to be a part of a relationship with not only Penny, but also Amelia. Mm-hmm. And he's hurt her too. Yep. You know, he and and I just I really like that because it's taking into account a very minor character, but the way it impacts our 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 main player is fantastic. 
And I, I think it, it just kind of shows how, you know, for so many of us, fear can get in the way of us making the choice that would actually make us better people, yeah. that would make us happier, that would make us more whole. And Maverick, that's what the beauty of this movie. He stopped running. Mm-hmm. And he's going to live. And I think that's really beautiful. And and I think it flows right into the son he never had in the sense that, like, gosh, Miles Teller, I think, in all honesty, is one of the best actors of our generation. Uh, he is well, of, that we of have a younger right generation. Now. He was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, uh, of right now, I mean, he was in Whiplash. He was in The Spectacular. Now he's in this, you know, he's he's in The Offer right now, which he's phenomenal in. This guy is such a good actor. And having seen him in lots of different types of roles, all the ones I just mentioned, he has such range. He can be very serious, but he can also be really funny, which he got in this movie too. Like that moment where he's like, oh, I guess we're going. And just his facial expression mm-hmm. before he runs is real funny. <laughs> like, so, and like you said, obviously he looks enough like Anthony Edwards. So I I am so glad they cast him in this movie because I think he's one of the things that really helps. I mean, along with Jennifer Connelly, He's one of the things that makes this story work mm-hmm. because they found the right actor to play against Tom Cruise who can bring it in those really heated moments but can do all the other stuff that you need to really make him a character to which you like. Yeah. You, I don't have anything I can possibly add to that. You're right. It, it's the, the chemistry is great and Teller was a phenomenal choice. Absolutely agree. Yeah, I I mean, it's one of those things where I like I almost, I almost feel bad, you know, for uh, you know, not talking about him more. But it's just like, what is there to say, other than he was just phenomenal? Miles Teller has always existed as an actor that when you watched movies, you would say, "Oh, that guy, he's good," right? I think that this becomes a catapult for him. I think that the rest of the cast, these are all, almost all of these people, not every last one, but almost all of these people I've seen in other roles. They're good actors and actresses. And this, I think, winds up becoming a star-making role for a lot of these people like Glenn Powell. I think Glenn Powell has a great stand-up. And the the thing is, this is where I went back and forth with my wife. Because my wife, who saw it with me, and trust me, it's a special treat when my wife actually sees a film with me. It's it's a rare event. Um, She saw Hangman as a lot like Iceman. And I contend Hangman's more like Maverick. He breaks the flight deck. He leaves his wingman, which is exactly what Maverick gets chewed out for in the first Top Gun movie, he's cocky. He, his mouth is writing checks that his body can't cash. Iceman was cocky, but Iceman was cocky, and he specifically had a problem with Maverick because Maverick was dangerous. And, you know, everybody makes fun of it. It's like, you guys, dangerous. But seriously, that was Maverick's problem. Is, is uh, Not Maverick's. Iceman's problem was, I'm a great flyer. And I follow the rules. You're great, but good Lord, you're going to get somebody killed out there. 
and I see Hangman as more an imitation, an echo of Maverick as a young man than Iceman. And I think that's why it's so interesting and beautiful to have Hangman be the backup who nonetheless gets a beautiful moment later in the movie. But it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, that worked so well, right? Like, I really thought that just worked amazingly. And I think Glenn Powell is going to enjoy some really high-paying, high-profile roles for a little bit. So long as he plays it right, he's going to become a star. I think so, too. No, I 100% agree with you. I I think that that next generation of of pilots that they have for this film was really well cast and i do think for me you know the the standout was absolutely uh glenn powell but uh and and i think what was interesting about him is 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 the fact like you said i think 100% he's the he's the mirror for maverick from the first movie um, which I loved. Um, and, and what's really cool too is he's actually about to be in another film where he's flying, uh, called Devotion, uh, based in the Korean War. It's a true story, oh, wow. uh, which looks phenomenal. I've seen the trailer now a few times because I've seen this movie and I can't wait to see it. So, but I'd also say, I mean, Lewis Pullman, who is Bill Pullman's kid, yeah. uh, was great as Bob. Yep. Um, Monica Barbaro, who's playing a Phoenix, was fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, Jay Ellis playing Payback was fun. Like, all of these characters, I think, were really well cast, really fun characters. And, they, you know, they don't get tons of screen time. But I think each one of them made a difference in the film because they just had this enough charisma to kind of help you understand who that character was without having tons of presence. I think that speaks to the director you choose. The, the the actor or the actress brings talent to the screen, no doubt. And there is innate talent. But the director knows how to get the best from them. And the simple fact that I remember Payback and Coyote and Phoenix and Bob and... Uh, uh, um, and uh, you know, fanboy, hangman, like the fact that I remember all of these characters as distinct characters is something I do not carry from the first movie. I remember Goose and I remember Maverick and I remember Iceman. Throw me a call sign from the first Top Gun outside of those three. The simple fact it took you a second. There you go. I can't think of one. Yeah. There you go. Well, and I think that's the thing that I kind of liked about the other cast in the film, which, you know, with Charles Parnell as Warlock, you know, Admiral Bates, mm-hmm. John Hamm as uh, Admiral Bo. Both of them are so well cast in this movie. Oh, yeah. To play their different roles. Um, the way in which, uh, you know, Admiral Bates is, you can always tell he's on Maverick's side, but he's the one who understands how to play the game just a little bit better. And and, and then I just love, you know, Admiral Bo Simpson, who he, his choice is like, okay, do I risk my, my pilots or do I risk my career on you? 
and he chooses correctly in the end. He has chosen wisely. Um, was just, I mean, because both of those characters play their role to absolute perfection so that you absolutely know who each one of these people are, again, without them having to spend a lot of time on screen. So it's perfect casting, excellent performance, and excellent direction to bring them to life. You know who you can't really uh, forget, though, as you talk about all of these people, is you definitely, and I'm going to butcher his name, I promise you I'm going to butcher his name, uh, but Bashir Salahuddin, Salahuddin, oh, Hondo. Yes, yes, playing Hondo. I love, and of course, I mean, as star, as longtime Star Wars fans, his name being Hondo is like okay. I love him already, but he was so good. And that scene, and I was able to explain this because uh, one of my daughters went too. That scene was so great when Maverick is strapping in at the end. And they have that echo where he says, I don't like that look on your face. And you see Maverick is shaken, and he, but he knows he's got to say, he goes, well, I don't have any other look. And he says, it's been an honor to serve with you. That's such, that was such a verbal hug. That was such a, like a, that was like that, that old school, I can't cry. We've got to stay focused on the mission, but I've told you everything I need to tell you with these little words right here. It's such a beautiful scene, and I remember laughing out loud when he winds up catching the football on the beach, and they all tackle him and everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I Nothing but great things for this guy going forward. I know that he is, like, this is going to be the star-making turn for him, too, and I, I yeah. can't wait to see him in more stuff. Yeah, and, and I just think it, it goes to show what you can do with the right script and the right director and the right performer to bring something to life. It just, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, I, I do want to ask you just about the mission that they go on, because it seems <laughs> eerily familiar to a franchise that we both love and one we would love to have seen Kosinski work in, which is Star Wars. That seems similar, doesn't it? <laughs> it's almost yeah. as if they're going down a trench to, I think they, an incredible rate. I think that, just an incredible I think they even rate. say that they're going for an exhaust port that's exposed that will mm-hmm. be... It's about two meters yeah, wide. That you the know. missile will go down to blow it all up. Sure does seem familiar. It sure does seem familiar. It's like Maverick had experience you're like shooting Womp Rats in his T-16. You yeah. Know, uh, Beggar's it Canyon. Is, it was extremely familiar <laughs> but i was but but at the same time it was the same but different because the original star wars was like oh i'm gonna fly down this trench this was you know the curves and the twists and everything yeah. like that that was thrilling and yes just reinforces the whole idea of why has not joseph kaczynski gotten a star wars movie yet like what the heck if anything Oh boy, here, I'm not going to make friends again here. This was way more interesting than what they did with the attack on Starkiller Base in The Force Awakens. Like, this is yet another thing where it's like, the (laughs) hell, man? How did everybody else figure this one out? Like, it's the same, but different. It's not a straight shot. It's twisty and turny, and you have to pull these crazy maneuvers off. Why not? I don't know. I don't know. 
Well, and, you know, the action was very clear, which brings me to... Oh, I, let me jump in on that. I'm so sorry. Let me jump in on that, because I think that one of the things that was beautiful was at the end, when they're, when they're in the post-mission dogfight, and they're cutting back and forth, you're just on the verge of losing your sense of place, right? You're just on the sense of, like, you're going back and forth, and you're saying, wait, wait where is everybody? What's going on? And there's the brilliant, beautiful decision to suddenly cut mm-hmm. and show everybody in a wide shot yep. flying at each other and flying 100%. around. And it's like, I was actually going to say that. That yes. was just a brilliant yes. decision. Yep. Yeah. Because it was, I need to let you understand the chaos that's happening, but then I want to show you the larger right. picture. So you have an understanding of what's happening there. And yeah, and, and and that's where I think the action and the look and the feel of this movie are just phenomenal. And we talked about that a little bit at the beginning. But the, I mean, they shot this with IMAX cameras, the, their, their 6K cameras. Um, their team spent a year with the Navy forces using the IMAX cameras inside the cockpit. The actors actually had to learn how to turn on the cameras so that then they could do their takes. So they're basically having to learn about basically directing themselves, being taught about lighting, cinematography, and editing. Like the amount of work that went into making this film look and feel the way it does. So you felt like you're in the cockpit. So you felt like you're in the cockpit again, the same way you did in Top Gun was fantastic. And I think this is one of the things that, again, people were responding to with this movie. And look, I don't have a problem with the use of CGI and things, but when you can do it for real like this, it's worth it. Absolutely worth it. And uh, that there were 800 hours of film shot. Do you yes, realize which is more than the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Do you realize that the editor for this film was probably on the brink of insanity assembling this stuff. <laughs> you know? You know it's helpful um that they probably can can look at yes. footage and stuff so much earlier than back in the day, you know, so that you can start to it's not as overwhelming. You know hopefully. what I picture him as? I picture him as in the old Dunkin' Donuts commercials where he just wakes up at like yes. time to time to edit yes. the film, and he just like walks off, and he yes. comes in, he sleeps for thirty minutes, and then yes. he goes back, and it's just I can't even imagine what. And on top of that, though, right? What an amazing gift to give to these actors to let them understand what the crew has to go through. To get a shot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to make presumptions. But these actors will have such a better relationship with their technical crews going forward because they really actually understand the nuts and bolts of what's happening on set. And mm-hmm. for yeah. all we know, this, this uh, boot camp and everything has created a new generation of people who will go on to become directors or smart producers. That'd be really cool. It's sort yeah. of like what's going on with Star Wars TV series, in a sense, where you sort of go through Star Wars boot camp. 
And it's like, okay, this is how you put a Star Wars thing together and you go forward. I'm not saying that to diminish one or the other. I'm just saying it's a similar sort of mindset of like, let's learn the ropes here. Let's see how this works. And you notice that as well with like more places using the volume and all of those sorts of things. But as much as I am a fan of the volume and what they were able to pull off with uh, the similar sort of technology over with um, the Batman, I mean, you can't, when you, especially when you got big action scenes like this, you cannot, you cannot oversell the importance of having the audience believe it's happening. And that, I think, pushes this film yeah. over the edge. And technically, amazing. I mean, they're really flying you know, like 50 feet above the desert surface, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just incredible, you know? So I, yeah, I mean, there's not enough that can be said about it, I think, but I I think the best thing to do is just to see Mm -hmm. it. And I, I would say too, you know, like the first Top Gun, I think the music and the music they choose, the needle drops they give all work really well, uh, to create, exactly what you want from the feel of this film it's enough retro it's enough new stuff to just make it feel right uh and you know i mean you have like han zimmers even in there to help with some of the composing you know that they do which i could hear yeah you know some of his refrains and a lot stuff of drums with with the, <laughs> yeah which was yeah. great so i you know i'm really glad i mean and even you know, uh, the song that they had at the very end with Lady Gaga, it's not as big as Take My Breath Away was in the sense of like, yeah. Yeah. but it, what's interesting is that the actual symphonic music uh, takes that theme and plays it a bunch before you actually hear the song really yeah. play out, you know, which I thought was great. So all in all, I think they get a a, a good job of choosing music for the film that just made it feel like a Top Gun movie, but at the same time was different enough that it didn't feel like a, just a repeat. I like what they did with uh, Harold Faltermeyer's original theme. I think it worked very well. And I, I, I agree with you about the soundtrack, and I just want to say that, and this is for a similarity in feeling sort of thing, but it opens up, and I don't, again, don't love the original Top Gun recognize its importance, all of that type of stuff. I don't love it, but I recognize it. I recognize Tony Scott was an absolute masterful director. What in a, what a splash on the scene sort of thing. But the fact that they opened up and they just got it out of the way and they said, hey, here's Danger Zone. We know you all expect to hear Danger Zone in this movie. Here's Danger Zone. We're done. Let's move forward. It was the most beautiful way to deal with it. To just say, mm-hmm. okay, you all, you're, everybody sitting in here, you expect to hear Danger Zone. Here it is over the opening, and we're done. Let's move forward now. And I'm like, that was the smartest thing. But at the same time, emotionally, it reminded me of sitting down in the theater, not knowing what music was going to play, and seeing Superman Returns for the first time. And as soon as I heard, bump it bump it bump it bump it my friend Joey was sitting next to me and he can tell you I got a big smile on my face. I went, yes, okay, good. You gave me the feel that I wanted in the beginning. Let's move forward. Yeah, no, I, I think you're 100% right. So, well, 
I'm interested because I feel like we've had nothing but effusive praise for Top Gun Maverick, which means I can't wait to see what you're going to rate this movie. I know it's tough. And there is uh, an emotional part of me where I'm still riding the high where I want to give it the five because I just thought it nailed so much. But I have to recognize there are a couple of things where I, I wish they'd given a little more time. I think there would have been could have been a little more time with Rooster and Maverick. I think there could have been a little bit more time with Penny and Maverick. But I like I, I'm having a hard time because I'm sitting here, I'm like, I came out of this movie on fire. I was so in love with it, and I so enjoyed it on the big screen and the the photography everything about it i thought was just just the bee's knees but i wind up giving it a four and a half because there are just a few things where i know we've been giving it this love affair session but there are just a few things where i think they could have added a little more emphasis here and there so that penny got a little more screen time and that the the Actually, not just Rooster and Maverick, but Rooster and Hangman could have had a little more screen time together. I think that would have been that would have been good too. But honestly, I, like I'm having a tough time because I want to give it a five. Like there's a part of me that's like I feel like I just don't want to give it that because it feels like something I shouldn't give something. But you know what? Screw it. I'll give it a five. What the hell? Mm-hmm. Why not? I like that. I mean, I really do. Uh, and and part of that is interesting because the, the first time that I saw the movie, I gave it a four. Mm. And the second time I saw the movie, I gave it a four. Mm. The third time I saw the movie, I gave it a four and a half. Ooh. And then the fifth, yeah, the fourth time I saw the movie, I gave it a four and a half as well. So I've seen it four times. So, wow. Um, it went up, but as we've been talking about it, I just realized in in somewhat the same way that you did, which is this conundrum, why not just give it a five? It, is, is it completely perfect? No, but does it, have I seen it four times in the last week and and felt completely joyful every time I've seen it? Why not give it a five? You know, which is the same way I felt about Soul. Yes. Which like, I, yes. I'm i just so joyful watching this film. Why don't I just give it a five? You know, so I, I yeah, I'm right there with you. This is definitely a five-star yes. film. Uh, I'll be changing it on my letterbox because it deserves it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm so glad we got a chance to do this. You know, um, just FYI for people, the... Uh, Creating of this episode was almost as arduous as the creation <laughs> of this movie uh, in some ways. And uh, we had a lot of behind-the-scenes things that happened. But I'm really glad that we got an opportunity to talk about this because I've had just an absolute blast with you, John. And so if people want to catch up with you maybe and see what else you've got going on these days, where would they be able to find well, my you. call sign online matt is kessel junkie k-e-s-s-e-l-j-u-n-k-i-e i do inhabit letterbox that's where i have the most fun online because pretty much every other social network is a cesspool of horror and you can find me uh doing podcasts as well 
aforementioned uh, Snyder Cuts and Assembling Avengers here on the 602 Club feed. You can also hear me over on the Nerd Party, where I co-host two shows, House Lights with Tristan Riddell and Darren Moser, and a delightful, in my opinion, Star Wars show called Aggressive Negotiations that I co-host with you, Matthew Rushing. Which I love doing with you, and I hope that people will check yes. out, uh, because they just should. Um, you could find me, of course, all over the place on social media on the moniker Matt Rushing Zero Two. Uh, you can also find me here on the network, uh, not in the Star, not the Six Hundred Two Club, doing things like Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp Five, The Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. Literary Treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Warp Five is about Star Trek Enterprise. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The Artificial Tango is about Star Trek Picard, and Saddle Up is about Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And then, of course, you also find me over on the Nerd Party Network when I'm not doing aggressive negotiations. I did a show called Owl Post with Drea Kaufman, where we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And what the great part is, is it's complete now, so you can listen to the whole thing. But... Thank you so much for joining us. And I got to say, John, I feel the need, the need for speed. Yes. Yes.